Hey guys, I just wanted to reach out to you and let you know that Surewinder is still selling amazing products. Some of you guys have been dragging your feet for whatever reason. If your shoulder hurts, do not waste time. Pull the trigger. I just bought uh, four or five of them and uh, we had two guys out. You know how much it cost me to pay for two guys being out with bad shoulders? We just pulled the trigger and we said, listen, everybody's going to have one on a truck. It's mandatory. You got to use it. Don't hesitate. Don't wait till your guys go down. It's going to cost you more. Buy a Surewinder. It's not every day someone invents something that changes the game. I found out about this product that I'm talking to you about uh, and I had to try it. So I ordered a few and after using it, I'm sold. Now we stock them on our trucks. It's called All Brace and it will help you sell more service and buy you time until doors come in. There's never been a greater time for a product like this. Phil has a video on his website of him cutting a door literally in half, installing the All Brace and running it like nothing ever happened. It is literally incredible. One of the greatest selling videos I've ever seen. You're going to want to check it out at all-brace.com. What's up, Garage Door Nation? This is Ryan with Torsion Talk Podcast, and I have one of the most exciting guests that we've ever had on the show because we're all standing around wondering what the heck is going on. And today, I hope to give you guys some clarity and some um, kind of answers from behind the door uh, where things are happening before they get to the manufacturers. So we're going to get into that here in just a second. Uh, but first, I want to introduce the lovely Tamara, and she's on as my co-host, and then uh, also babysitter, <laughs> a real thing. Um, and then a few weeks ago, like just recently, we signed up with, uh, I'll give a shout out to Jenna. Jenna is amazing. Uh, Jenna uh, talked me into um, advertising in a couple new magazines, which I'm not a huge like magazine guy, but what I really like about this particular publication is they have these events and they're like really classy, really nice. And we get to rub elbows with some pretty cool people, but the, they're like, uh, if you guys follow along the podcast, you know that I really try to cater to a higher end market and clientele. And we work a lot with interior designers, uh, architects, designers in general. And uh, so that is what this whole, like all these events are just full of people in that, in that industry. So uh, I happened to be at an event recently. It was like uh, a week or two ago and I'm walking around filming and uh, this gentleman stops me and he's like, Hey, uh, you do garage doors. And I'm like, yeah. And so I stopped the recorder and he was polite. He was like, Hey, if you're recording, I'm sorry. No, I was like, I'm good. I'm always down to chat. Of course. That's what I do for a living. Um, and he's like, uh, asked me questions about my company and I'm like, Oh, what are you doing? He's like, you know, he works for a steel company and just so happens to supply some garage door manufacturers. He was like, who do you sell? And so we're talking, he's like, Oh yeah, I'll supply them. And so the, there's this, uh, I'm, I'm like, all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my God, like a little girl. I'm like, I, I need answers. Like, get, help me, help me. Uh, and so I'm a sucker for data. He's been sending me like, I get emails from this guy, like once every three days with like some really good data, which I love. So thank you, by the way. 
Um, but we got to talk and I'm like, dude, you're perfect. Like, I love your energy, your passion for what you do. Uh, and a lot of people in our industry are really looking for some answers. Uh, because like when we try to get the information from our manufacturers, they're like, I don't know. Um, so it's been really difficult. And so hopefully today we'll give some clarity to all the things that's been going on for the last few years. So today we have Brian on and Brian, I'm going to let you do your introduction. Just tell us a little bit about who you are. Uh, but you've been in the steel industry for a very long time. Yes. Hey, Ryan, I've been in the business since 1991. I was hired right out of college. I went to Kennesaw State University locally, and uh, I learned the business from uh, two executives as their assistant customer service rep, moved my way up into sales, moved into a commercial director role, and now my focus is on business development for Majestic Steel USA. Uh, we're headquartered out of Cleveland, Ohio, but we have a sales office here in, in uh, Marietta, Georgia. So what was interesting is, is um, in my field, learning about supply chain and seeing how it interacts with business was something that I, I became very uh, attracted to. Uh, I really enjoyed you know, supply chain and working with customers and augmenting their current steel supply chain by just being different. So most salespeople that are in our industry, they don't really look at the supply chain aspect of things. They look at what, what do I need to do to get the next sale? Um, so I really, really embrace this role and, and it's been a lot of fun. And, and with our company at Majestic, we provide ourselves or provide ourselves and our customers with as much fact-based information to be able to make intelligent decisions. So I'm hopeful after this call here that, or this uh, podcast, that we should be able to put you and anyone else that you're working with in a better position to make good decisions. Heck yeah. And your warehouse is packed full of steel at this very moment. No, I'm just kidding. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a, uh, a background. We're on, we're on zoom. Uh, for those of you guys who follow us along on, um, on uh, YouTube, you can see his background. I, I just, ever since I came on, I was like, oh my God, I got to make a joke. <laughs> all that steel behind him. And uh, can we have some? So does it look like well, that now? It, it really is. I, I would have to say that our inventory position is very strong. We pride ourselves in maintaining the largest available inventory of galvanized steel, which is what the garage door people use. Um, and we pride ourselves in having it available when you need it, not when you're telling us uh, what you're going to use. We should already know what you're going to use using, you know, innovation and analytics to be able to go ahead and, and be able to you know, take care of our customers. So that's our one of our big differentiators is being able to have available in inventory in any market. Yeah, I, I feel like our manufacturers haven't figured that out themselves. Analytics, data, availability. <laughs> um, so kudos to you. And maybe hopefully some manufacturers listen to this podcast uh, because it feels like, and I'm not saying it is, it just feels like they're unprepared uh, like, like the world was going to keep going perfectly and we weren't going to have any disruptions or volatility. And the minute there was, it was like, 
everything went sideways. I mean, they were already, for the most part, kind of struggling anyway, in my opinion, uh, as far as operations, communications, uh, systems, and processes. So uh, COVID threw everything off. You all right, Tamara? You're not dying, are you? No, I just always feel bad. Like I have to turn my video off to cough because I don't know if it's going to like, I don't want to be coughing on YouTube. Sorry. I have this fear that like she's going to choke and die on the podcast. Uh, that would be horrible because I couldn't get to her and like, we wouldn't want to stop the podcast. So it'd be like, I'd have to figure out something while talking. <laughs> I'm fine. The worst panic moment of my life. Um, all right. So Brian, uh, walk us. So you're well qualified. We've established that walk us through the past two years, two and a half years, um, in, in the steel industry, uh, and how it's kind of evolved and changed and some of the challenges and uh, things like that? Well, uh, great question. And two years has really been some, we've seen some monumental changes in the, the steel industry. For one, we've seen consolidation. So right now there's four domestic steel mills that control over 70% of the production in the United States. And so you've seen that change happened. You've seen uh, changes in leadership. Through acquisitions? Through uh, acquisitions, yes. So like, for instance, um, if you've ever heard of Cleveland Cliffs, or excuse me, AK Steel, uh, they were purchased by Cleveland Cliffs. And Cleveland Cliffs also purchased ArcelorMittal. So just with that acquisition alone, you're seeing a, a lot of consolidation happen in the industry with ArcelorMittal and AK falling under the Cleveland Cliffs umbrella. So through acquisition, we've seen a lot of that happen. And we've actually just recently saw Nucor purchase California Steel out in, in uh, California. And we've seen uh, US Steel purchase uh, Big River Steel. So, so we've seen that happen over the last two years uh, with the consolidation of the, the industry, the mindset of the industry um, going from volume, 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 everybody push out volume to know about to now where it is, it's value over volume. The other thing that we saw during the pandemic, which was very, very interesting, was as automotive shut down in March of 2020, about this time, as a matter of fact, we started to see a lot of other manufacturers shut down and the steel mills just said, well, wait a second, if, if nobody is producing anything, we're gonna to have to take out capacity in the marketplace. And that's what happened between March and about May. So they pulled, back, about a, anticipate, they pulled back anticipating a reduction in orders essentially, right? Correct, that's exactly what happened. And the opposite and, happened. Pardon me? And the opposite happened. The opposite happened around May or June. So around May, automotive started to come back June manufacturing started to come back. But what was interesting is the steel mills were concerned about COVID because it was so new. We hadn't been through a pandemic in forever. And so they were cautious about bringing that capacity back on. And they didn't bring it back on. And so what ended up happening was uh, with demand starting to come back and we started to see that V-shaped recovery occur probably around July, August, people were staying home, people were um, investing into garage doors or various other things. 
we started to see the demand come back, but the supply hadn't come back. So the increases that we started to see come around August of 2020. And, and here's, a, here's an interesting thought or a statistic. In August of 2020, the base price for galvanized steel was around $30 a hundredweight, call it 30 cents a pound. And then it gradually, gradually, gradually moved up and kept moving up because there was way more demand than there was supply. There was shortages that was in play. And in October of 2021, that same price for steel was at $1.09 a pound. So I calculated that up and my math had that up at about 275%. And that was strictly a market-related price increase, had price, uh, price adjustments, had nothing to do necessarily with costs as much as it had to do with uh, a market situation. And that's what we saw basically in- So in demand created a price increase, not so much the increase of price in steel, like the cost of goods or manufacturing it, it was just demand. It was, it was lack, it was more demand than there was supply. And so if you think about it, the mills had cut back their capacity, but then all of a sudden the demand started happening. And if Quickly. you think about it, it's like getting your car and, and taking it out on 400 and you hadn't driven it in a year. And then all of a sudden you drive it for three hours straight at hundred miles an hour, <laughs> you know, yeah. things happen. Uh, equipment breaks, maintenance needs to happen. And, you know, the, the onslaught of demand overtook the, the supply. Basically that's what happened. So it sounds like to me that this is a direct um, effect of injecting large amounts of cash into the industry. Uh, whether uh, all the government money to the business, excuse me, the businesses, as well as uh, the like civilians. Um, <clears throat> there was large amounts of cash, excuse me. <clears throat> there were large amounts of cash given out. Um, and so people had money to spend. They were sitting at home. They had extra cash anyway, because they weren't going out to eat. They weren't going, they weren't going on vacation you know, everybody was stuck in their house or getting, you know, shopping fever and everything else. So they're on Amazon or, you know, they're buying things they are shopping for fixing up their house because they're spending more time there. Um, do you, do you think that also played a role in like the home service portion of that? Absolutely. I definitely did. I, uh, you know, interesting situations going on people were were not spending money on vacations or going out to eat like you said and we saw in certain industries where um, we knew that the product was going to somebody's house and we could definitely see the impact in our in our order book from those manufacturers that were making product that was going into to people's houses so uh, whether they were making a trough that they were using for various reasons maybe to use as a beer cooler or a pool, a little mini pool to, to go ahead and, and put their kids in or whatever that was out there, anything that was home related, we definitely saw a huge spike in, um, in usage. So let's talk about the different types of steel, because I know you specialize in galvanized, but there's also a lot of other types of steel. Um, in the garage door industry, uh, I think, that, you know, I could think of like uh, 
things that are super important. You've got uh, the springs. Uh, that wouldn't be something that you supply, right? Or do you do the galvanized springs? No, we we wouldn't. So typically for us, what we would be supplying would be the galvanized steel that's used in the, the pre-painted door itself. Mm-hmm. And then also the track that is used. So, which is just a bare galvanized product. So that's what we would be, what we would be supplying. So you supply basically raw material, uh, unformed to the manufacturers, and then they form it uh, the way they need it, right? Correct. Okay. So you're like ground zero. I mean, this thing's happening, like starting with you and then coming up, right? I I like to say that we're like at a football game and we're Uh sitting at the 50-yard line. And so we can see on the supply side what the mills are doing, but we can also see on the demand side what the customers are doing. And so I think it gives us a really good view of what's going on in in the industry. So I, I really do like our position where we are. Nice. Okay. So you guys aren't the mills. Uh, let, let me ask you a question about mills. So I heard a rumor and I don't know if it's true, but I heard a rumor from multiple people reached out to me because I did a podcast, uh, when all this was going on about, um, steel pricing and stuff like that. Um, and somebody, I had a couple people reach out to me and say, Hey, listen, I got a friend of mine that's in the steel business. He's saying that the mills and the brokers have kind of like joined up together and they're holding supplies using COVID as an excuse to drive up the prices uh, because the steel they've already manufactured will be worth significantly more in a month or two if they hold it and then release it than if they just release it every month. Is that something that you heard happened or are you disconnected from that? Or is that something that sounds totally false? I'm connected well enough to be able to say that um, the there's a different tactics that, that companies use in, in providing steel. So when you're talking about the distribution program through the mills, they, they there's the steel mills and the, sometimes they sell directly to the manufacturers and then other times they'll sell through service centers, which is what we are. We're a distributor. We, we're our service center. Um, brokers that are out there are guys that are just kind of working out of their house and they don't really maintain any inventory. So as far as the broker aspect of it, I don't know that a broker would have um, the cash flow to be able to go ahead and buy millions of dollars of steel and sit on it and in hopes that it would go up. Plus, that's a huge risk. Um, do I think I think what was what I saw happen in 2020 and 2021 is the mills were putting people on allocation. And so allocation means that you can only buy so much to be able to go ahead and take care of your customer base. So based on what we saw in 2020 and 2021, it would be hard for me to believe that a broker or even a service center would be able to hoard a whole bunch of steel based on the demand of their customers and based on the supply restrictions of the mills. So, and I don't believe that the mills would be in in cahoots in that sort of program. I believe that the mills would be keeping everybody in check to make sure that everybody was ordering whatever quantities that were tied into their supply agreements 
And so that's, that's exactly how I would say that happens. Now, one thing is interesting about the steel industry is there's a lot of anecdotal information. You're gonna hear, I hear it all the time. And, and, and some of the stuff I really shake my head at, um, not what you just said, but other things. So it's not unusual to hear, I, I make a joke of it. Um, my brother's sister's veterinarian's cousin works at a steel company and he says the price is going up. But if you ask them why, they can't give you an answer. So uh, we pride ourselves on, you've seen our information being fact-based, um, tied to some sort of index um, to be able to go ahead and give the customer some really good intel and making good decisions. So we try to stay away from the anecdotal stuff. And at the time of this recording, which were Monday, March 14th at roughly one o'clock now, um, he has sent me, I believe, two scrap metal um, documents, data documents, both of which uh, tell the same story. I think it was two uh, that we're seeing the highest increase um, month over month. I think it was. And tell, forgive me if I'm uh, missing it. You can correct me in a second. Uh, since like, or, or uh, yeah, since like 2008 or something like that, August 2008, yeah. if I recall correctly. You're, you're right on target. And I'm glad you brought that up because there's a couple. Listen, <laughs> drugs are bad kids, but you can recover when you grow up. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. So we saw scrap go up in the month of March. The reading just came out of $190 a ton, which is the largest month over month increase that we've seen since August, I believe, of 2008. Um, what I would also say, what's very important for people that are buying galvanized, and this may be one of the most important things I will tell you, is that galvanized requires a, a product or, zinc, or commodity called zinc. Obviously, that's, that's what is your corrosion resistance that protects the steel from being rusted out. Before the pandemic started, or actually right at the pandemic, zinc was trading at 87 cents a pound. Today, it's trading at $1.71 a pound. So you can see that it's, it's basically doubled. There, what I would say as we're talking about, we've segued it basically now into a cost type of situation, what's driving the cost up. What we talked about earlier in 2021 was basically a supply driven or a market driven price increase. What we're headed into right now, which most people may or may not be aware of is, is we're looking at a cost-driven price increase. So a lot of the raw materials that go into making steel come from other countries around the world. Uh, like for instance, pig iron, which is a substitute for scrap, comes from, uh, comes from, comes from Europe. And actually a lot of it comes from uh, Ukraine. And so with that being said, pig iron from actually Ukraine and Russia when that comes over, if it's available, is going to be very expensive. Um, so you're, you're seeing a lot of things happening with, with, uh, with actual costs that go into making steel, causing the finished good to be quite higher. So the market that we're in right now, yes, prices will be rising, but it's going to be a totally different market than what I think we saw at being a market driven. Unless one thing were to happen, which would be if Europe cannot get enough steel, the United States could actually be an exporter of steel to Europe, which is actually 
the first time I've I've heard of that in in almost my whole career. So it's it's an interesting time to be in the market right now. So if that happens, does that negatively impact the United States, like companies like garage door manufacturers and dealers and automotive makers, or does that make it better because they can ramp up uh, by more quantity um, and sell it to them for more? That's a good question. I, I would say if we were to become an exporter to, to countries around the world, I would say that you could see two things happening. You could also, you could see the cost driven uh, price increases that I just mentioned happen. But if the mills are exporting steel and there's only so much to, to be able to be purchased here domestically by other manufacturers or service centers because the steel is being exported, that could actually cause potentially a, another market-driven price increase to go, to go along with the cost-driven price increase. So I, I would say the best piece of advice I could give to anybody in your industry right now would be to get knowledgeable on what's going on, get educated on what's going on, um, through reliable sources. And so obviously I'm biased. I work for Majestic Steel, but, <laughs> but our information, if you go to our website, we've got all the information that I sent to you. A lot of it is on that website. Uh, we actually have podcasts that talk about steel. And so not to get you know too much into a pro Majestic because I'm, I'm a biased. listener now. I'm <laughs> definitely going to be listening. Um, keep in mind that you know if you're looking at a podcast and you're and you're and you're watching it or you're listening to it, I should say. The one thing I would say is the company that's that's doing the podcast, which is Majestic, bought over a billion dollars worth of steel last year to support their customers. I don't know an analyst that's out there in the United States of America that's bought a billion dollars worth of of steel. So you're actually getting information from people that are taking the biggest risk. And so that's whether I worked at Majestic or not, that's pretty compelling to be able to tell somebody they bought a billion dollars worth of steel and took that much risk. So I'd be listening to what they have to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No joke. Uh, so sounds like you got, you guys have like analyst and that's what you do. And you spoke earlier about zinc and being a commodity. And, and I I've recently within probably the last uh, I think six years started investing uh, my money. Uh, pretty aggressively in different areas. And I do know like there's uh, certain metals that can be traded. Um, there there may even be like some futures contracts or like ETFs and stuff. Um, are there things like that for steel? Yes, there are. And quite honestly, I know enough about those just to be dangerous. So I don't want to be the guy that's um, the veterinarian's brother's friend that works at a yeah. steel company. And the only reason I'm bringing <laughs> but that I can up. connect you to our analysts um, who would actually be able to, uh, to answer that re really well. We've got two analysts on staff and then the owner of our company, um, in my opinion, is the, uh, the best at purchasing steel in the United States. Nice. That, that is a good statement. That was good. You can cut that up and give it to your boss because it was well done. Um, so what the reason why I say this is, is because in the areas that I invest, I do like deep study, right? Um, and there's massive amounts of manipulation um, to 
change the price of things to get it to move in one direction or the other uh, by these what what me and my crew call whales, right? Uh, whales are people with massive amounts of money in the market, and they want they have um, like motives to either buy more or sell. So they're you know if they're wanting to sell, they're going to try to drive the price up somehow, and if they want to buy, they're going to try and drive the price down somehow. Um, lots of manipulation. I don't know if that's something that like the 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 steel industry is so big. So I don't know if that's even something that could even take place. Um, but if you gather a couple one percenters, uh, I don't know if that's worth their time or not. But um, I, I've always wondered that with steel, uh, since this has all gone down. Um, maybe I'm looking too hard for conspiracy theory, but I just see it so much in some of these other markets that I invest in. Um, is that something that you could see happening or probably just a conspiracy theory? I'd say most of it is a conspiracy theory, to be quite honest with you. Um, the steel industry is very large. And what's interesting now, um, I'm not going to try to change the subject too quickly for you, but, but, what's in, but what's interesting right now is we're talking about steel right now in, in today's world. But did you know that automotive is not producing any cars? I mean, you go down the road and you, and you try to buy a, a car, the lots are empty. And so why they're not producing cars that you, you read about it, hear about it all the time is the chip shortage. And we're in this really, really crazy steel market right now. We're talking about a market-driven price increase, and we're talking about a, um, a, a cost-driven price increase. But automotive's on the sidelines. They're not producing many cars. So if you think about it, when automotive does come back, whether it's in Q3, Q4 of 2022 or next year, just think about where the steel market is going to be at that particular time when automotive was in. If automotive was producing cars right now, there's no telling what would be going on with the market. So I would say that, you know, that's, that's one element that to consider as you're, as you're looking at the market. But I, I would say overall, there's always going to be conspiracy theorists and, and, and I don't, I think the steel, steel industry might be a little bit big for that. I've been told by someone who would know that Ford is working on a new strategy. As a matter of fact, they love the fact that the demand is up and the supply is down. Um, and it's my understanding that they don't plan to manufacture near as many cars or trucks or SUVs as they have in the past going forward. They're trying to stock the lots with um, the particular vehicles based on data and then having an ordering system be like, if you don't want these standard cars or vehicles, then, you know, you can order your vehicle. And so they're trying to get more efficient on manufacturing and the ordering system. I, I believe that's a, probably a great strategy for Ford. Um, what do you say to that? Uh, I would say that they're utilizing innovation, um, kind of like how we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, they, you know, manufacturers are are learning what the secret sauce is to be able to make money, and it's going talking about that value over volume situation. Ford, it sounds like to me, they're doing that. Uh, they're they're util utilizing analytics, they're utilizing innov innovation to be able to figure out which cars are going to sell the best. 
and be able to create just enough quantity to make sure that they don't get beaten up on the price. Because if you have too much of an item, you are eventually going to get beaten up on price because, and, and what's interesting is, as I listened to one of your podcasts earlier, you had said, what? I did. I, I always come prepared. If anybody Crazy. knows me very well, uh, I can tell you some, some funny stories about me being prepared, but I, I was prepared for this. And, and you had said the garage door industry was kind of having to, this was necessary. This was needed for the garage door industry. It's the same thing for the steel industry. And back before the pandemic, steel was an easy item to find. Everybody produced it. It was a leveraged item in the in the supply chain. Now it's more of a strategic item. You can see that Ford is going to, in, in that particular example you gave me, is going to a strategic way of, of um, you know, making their cars and selling their cars. I believe you guys are going to be doing the same thing as we move forward. Yeah, so I, I agree. And you and I discussed this at the event too, where... I was happy to see the price increases because, you know, when you're trying to price your product out, let's say, for example, you're selling a new door, right? Uh, let's say you're selling an eight by seven uh, builder grade, non-insulated garage door. The whole kit, track, springs, torsion tube, hardware box, door sections, the whole thing. You were buying it for like a hundred something bucks. The whole thing. Wow. Okay. Yeah, for real. That's what I'm saying. Like, so if you're trying to make like in, and you got all like our industry, I would say probably 60 or 70% of it is small, small, small mom and pop shops, like three people or less. Right. And so those guys were all installers and technicians prior to starting their own business. And so what they know is, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a, you know, a multiplier of one point you know, six or 1.75 or two or 2.25. And that's how I'm going to price my product out. And a lot of them even include the labor into that. But I mean, if you're buying a door at 180 bucks, 150 bucks, and you're at $300 installed, uh, that is not good. I mean, same thing with like, you can't make enough money in the day, right? Like the process from our view is, you have to go like in that scenario as a, as a small dealer, you're going to a distributor to pick up your door. So you gotta, you gotta go out, you gotta measure, right? You gotta measure the opening, spend 30, 45 minutes with the customer. Then you gotta leave, go somewhere else. Uh, they sign off, you get the deposit, you order the door, then you go pick it up. And most likely if you're going to a distribution center, you're going to be there for an hour because there's other dealers and you got there. Most distribution centers not all, but most are a little bit dysfunctional. They're having trouble staffing, you know, there's constant new issues and it's a big behemoth uh, of a, of a task. Right. Uh, but, but you haven't even gotten to the install yet and you're like five or six steps in and you're selling a 300, $400 door installed. Right. I mean, then you go to the job site and the customer hasn't cleaned out the garage. So now you're moving everything around so you can do it safely you unload the car, you unload the truck, you break down their current door, you put in the new door and then you drive off. But that whole process, I mean, all of the, if you take into consideration the office staff or all of the wait time and the drive time and all this stuff, you, you didn't make a dime on the door. Like you made, you didn't make a dime. Um, so to me, 
it's it's more important to have the product be five hundred or eight hundred dollars because then even at a fifty percent margin where these small guys are bumping their prices up, um, it's more lucrative because you're making the day's uh, work worth it, right? So you can now cover your overhead and your install, uh, whereas before you weren't covering any of it. So in my opinion, I'm super happy that the prices are higher. I mean, you compare an eight by seven garage door to a, uh, you know, standard entry door. Standard entry door is going to cost you, you know, a decent one. Uh, like a builder grade, it's going to cost you probably 800 bucks, maybe 1500 bucks just for the door. Um, but there's more components and parts and, and everything in a garage door. So I'm like, man, it's about time that this kind of like balanced out a little bit. And so I'm, I'm really excited. And I know I've, I've mentioned that and people in these Facebook groups that I'm in with garage door businesses, they're frustrated. They're like, man, these price increases keep coming. And I'm like, good. <laughs> Cause if you're pricing your product, right, you're making more bottom line and it's also increasing your revenue. So in the grand scheme of things, this is like one of the best things that could have happened to us. And the manufacturers can make more money resulting in better customer service, better systems and processes, better software, better communication, better everything. And, and ultimately that should hopefully trickle down to us eventually, maybe like 10 years after COVID, but it, we're working on it. I, I'm excited for your, your industry in that regard. I mean, we, we see it, we see it, you know, in our industry from time to time when you have certain players that don't value the product as well as say we would. And, I, and in your industry, I'm seeing the same thing. So, so you've got, you know, two guys working out of their house or whatever, and they, they get in their truck and they, they, they install a garage door. But I, I look at that and I'm like, as a homeowner, I'm like, what's the risk to me buying a garage door from them because of the fact that I don't know how a garage door operates. I want to buy from somebody who who's going to be reliable, who's going to be able to install it correctly. And one thing I noticed about your company is you have your own installers. You don't sub it out to other people, which I would thought was really, that adds a lot of value. And if you think about it from a risk mitigation standpoint, which is actually one of the things I talk about within supply chain, the last thing you're going to want, especially with the weather being as cold as it was over the weekend, is your garage door not to work. And, you know, and then, you know, you, you just don't, you, you just take for granted that you just push that button and the garage door it goes up or down. You know, that's, that's a huge selling point as you're selling your product is, is, you know, making sure that, you know, if your husband travels, you don't want that garage door not to be able to close. Yep. You know, there's just a lot of things to, to, to be said for it. So it, you, you bring a lot to the industry here in Atlanta by valuing what you guys do. If I've looked at your website and your podcasts, I mean, it says a lot. So I, I think hopefully you'll be able to overcome the others that are, don't value the, uh, the product as much as you guys do. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I had somebody tell me last week, I'm ripping people off because I'm charging 50% margin. It's freaking crazy. Um, but anyway, don't get me started. 
uh, Tamara, this is when you speak up and say, okay, Ryan, forgiveness, consistency, and everything, including price, reliability, quality, not just quality, but great quality control. These are things that describe Somer USA. Somer's not some startup company, not one that you need to be worried about going out of business in the near future. Somer's a two, Somer and their family of businesses are $200 million companies. They're in over 100 countries, and they have locations in 20 countries. This is a large organization who stands behind their product and works through integrity. And there's not another company out there willing to drop what they're doing and help you out like Somer. These guys are awesome. Not only have they been loyal to the Torsion Talk podcast, they've been loyal to the technicians and the owners of the companies who install their product. In my opinion, if you're not at least offering Somer as an additional option, you're cheating yourself. Listen, first time dealers, I've got a special for you. If you buy 10 or more Somers between now and the end of the season six, while supplies last, we will offer you free shipping. You have no more excuses. The prices are great. The product is amazing. Go check out Somer USA and order 10 for free shipping. I'm going to tell you guys a marketing secret. You want to gain more social media likes, shares, and follows? People love unique and cool projects. There are no better photos to share than the ones on Schweiss Doors social accounts. These guys post some incredible things. Make sure to go there and like and share their Facebook and Instagram post with your business account. So if you like their business account, you can share their uh, their post. The bifold doors are awesome and they're doing some great projects that will go viral on social media if you share them. Go right now to Schweiss Door on Facebook and check out some of the projects they share and like their page. Oh, and don't forget, no one builds a better bifold than Schweiss. I know, I'm, yeah. Actually, okay. handle it. Uh, sp- as my wife says, and she's an interior designer, so you know we're all in it in this together. You got to handle it with grace. That's right. That's right. So when we're when we're trying to track um, maybe what the manufacturers in the garage door industry are tracking, we're looking for galvanized steel, uh, which is you guys put those reports out. Where could we look to find? Um, like spring wire uh, data? That's a great question. I, I don't know the answer to it, but I'll, um, I will write this down and ask one of my, um, my uh, analysts. So spring wire data. So it might be spring steel, which is used or some sort of, we can check into to wire, spring wire, how it's made and, and, and okay. you know, where it's made and, and, and what costs are involved. So, but I, I would say if I were in your shoes, I would be wanting to know when a garage, in a garage door, when you buy a garage door from a manufacturer, what is the percentage of cost of steel that's used in making a garage door? So oh, if it's, brought this up when we were talking. Yes, exactly. So this is a bomb, what, y'all. 
pay attention. If you're busy installing your garage door right now, you got your headphones in, stop what you're doing and listen, because this is going to be probably one of the most exciting parts of the podcast. Go ahead. Right. And I learned this in, um, in my supply chain management course, it's a cost model. And so if we're looking at all the costs that go into making a garage door, you've got obviously the steel, you've got labor, you've got the paint, you got to figure out what paint costs are going to be. And then of course your freight to get it. So if you're able to figure out, you know, percentage wise, you know, what's the cost that's into each element when the price of steel goes up by 275%, you should be able to figure up, you know, how much that's going to impact you from a door standpoint. And, and the beauty of that is, is that it's not only can be used by the, you guys that are purchasing the door, but your salespeople. So your salespeople go out and they're, they're trying to sell your product. And, and some guy says, Oh, you're ripping me off. You got this, you got that, you know, all that nonsense. You just walk them through and say, okay, here's, here's the cost of, of a door. Theoretically, here's the percentage of it in steel. Steel's gone up by 300%. What do you want me to do? So knowledge is power, both on the buy side and the sell side. So I can't tell you how many times I'm dealing with a customer and actually use a transparent cost model with the customer to be able to make the sale because you're actually like you had said in one of your other podcasts how transparent you are you're a very transparent person with your with your clients and i think that transparency really works well when you're in a cost driven situation or even a market driven situation yeah i've told clients how much i pay for stuff especially doors um it's a lot of times they don't believe us. And then I remember I was in automotive industry, you know, back in 1999 is when I started selling cars and they put me in the internet department and they told me, they were like, Hey, look, you can't make any money here. So you gotta, it's a volume game. You gotta sell a ton of cars because everybody knows what the invoice is. And I'm like, so why? I don't understand. Why can't you make money if they know how much you paid for the car? That should make it more easy. And they're like, no, 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 because they want to buy it at that or cheaper. Everybody starts there. And I'm like, well, that's not how that works. And so I would sit down with people and have simple, like, economic conversations. Like, look, this is what we, this is our invoice. This is what we paid for. Uh, we got other incentives if we hit certain volume and things like that. But I need to make money also. So, you know, there's got to be enough room for me, the dealership and, and the detailer who's going to wash the car who's already washed it a couple of times, but he's going to like really like detail it nicely for you. We're going to fill it up with gas. Like all that stuff has to be taken into consideration when we sell you this car. So um, we need to find a price that we both agree on that's over this and in between this and the MSRP. And this is at a time where like cars were straight commodities. I mean, you're talking eight, late nineties, early two thousands. I mean, you, you could literally drive 15 minutes to another dealership and buy the exact same car on the lot. We're talking new cars here. So it worked and customers were like, Oh wow. And I'm like, man, you're spending $20,000 on a car. I mean, the, the, the whole vehicle only has like $2,000 markup. I, I'm asking for 1200 of that. Like, you know, what do you think? Did I do a good job? Am I worth $1,200? 
And some customers would be like, absolutely, Ryan, let's do it. And other customers would be like, no, you're not. <laughs> and, you know, they, they only care about price. And that's when I learned not every customer is my customer. I had to learn that the hard way. Uh, and so now when I do marketing, you know, when we onboard people, I, we go through a series of questions and we try to identify like, who are they going after? Uh, because that's important. Uh, if you, if you have a strategy and everyone's your customer, you don't have a strategy. Uh, that's not a strategy. So you got to identify who, who your customers are. And I think that's super important. And that's why we're at these events bumping into important people like Brian. So uh, I'm going to change the subject real quick. Brian, is it safe to say with what you mentioned about zinc and um, uh, what did you call that other steel? Pig steel? Uh, pig iron. Pig iron. It's a, it's a, replacement. Uh, it's a uh, replacement for scrap. Yeah. So with those coming from over there, uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, you got the war going on. You got fuel prices going through the roof, which also have to take, be taken into consideration too, right? Because you have to transport it. You have trucking shortages. So truckers are asking for more money, uh, not just because of fuel, but because of shortages and demand. Uh, you got the price of steel going up. Uh, so, so there's a lot of factors that don't seem to be working in the favor of price coming back down. So do you imagine that the prices are going to continue to get inflated over the next 12 to 18 months? I would have to say you've got so many factors, which you just listed out in the last two minutes, driving cost up so that even if steel pricing were to come back some, there's another cost element. So you're almost like playing a game of whack-a-mole with the costs to go ahead and be able to bring the go ahead and bring the the, the overall pricing back down so I, I would have to say you would have to have in my opinion for pricing to come back down on everything you'd have to have a fundamental shift in everything from from freight to fuel to labor. I mean, labor is another tough situation. I go into manufacturers all over the country. I was, I was in one last week. They said three years ago, they had 600 people in the plant. Today, they have 270. Wow. <laughs> and so labor is a big, big deal. And until we get into an AI situation, which will replace some of the labor. What does that mean? AI or artificial intelligence. Oh, you're talking about AI. I thought you said yeah. AI for whatever reason. So until we get into where innovation replaces labor, which is some of the things that we're actually doing at Majestic right now, we have innovation tools to go to replace labor. We, we're going to see this, this trend continue. And so where gas is, you know, five to $9 a gallon, depending on where you are in the United States, you know, diesel is right there with it. I mean, it's it's going to be, this is what we're looking at. This is the new normal. And I would also say the other thing is, is that if interest rates start to rise, risk starts to rise, risk starts to rise. Some of the smaller companies may not be able to take that risk. The people yeah. that you were talking about earlier. All right. So we had dozens, if not hundreds if not hundreds on hundreds of ships uh, sitting in the ocean, like uh, cargo ships. And everybody kept pointing to that in our industry, like 
there's all our doors and there's our springs and all that stuff from China. Uh, do, do you feel like the, the port issues were a contributor to uh, like delays in getting product price increases uh, shortages? I, th- I think it contributed to it. Some, I think um, when you're talking about the overall supply chain, it's, And for supply chain managers and for business owners, the biggest thing right now is being able to not just forecast demand, but forecast output. Because if you don't forecast your output well, you're going to have a whole bunch of, you know, 80% finished goods sitting on your floor and not being able to take in more raw materials. So to go back and answer your question, um, supply chain people around the United States are struggling in getting product um, from overseas and dealing with these port situations where, you know, things are sitting for 30, 45, 90 days at a time and it disrupts the whole process. And it's, and, and I would say supply chain people right now are pulling their hair out. People that I, people that I could talk to daily, they're so busy trying to solve, you know, put out these fires. I maybe talk to them maybe once a month. And it's not because they don't want to talk to me it's because they don't have the time they're 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 constantly you know juggling all the different components to producing their finished good can y'all hear that i didn't hear anything my whole building is shaking like i think there's a helicopter on this roof oh <laughs> you finally got your helicopter it's coming to I pick hope you so. up maybe they delivered it um <laughs> i wish all right. So, um, can we expect, like, I feel like we have some manufacturers who are really, um, on the spot, like I'll give a shout out to CHI. They, they went from like 20 week lead time down to like eight to 12. Uh, don't know how they did it. Maybe it was because a lot of people left them because they were so bad at one point. Um, and now you have like, I think majority of manufacturers are, you know, 14 to 20 weeks out uh do you see like material being the part of the issue with that and is should that get better or worse uh and i know it's hard to answer because all the other factors involved but what what are your projections what what does brian at majestic think do you think that uh that it's going to get tighter and we're going to have a harder time getting the steel to make the doors or do you think we've kind of leveled off and everybody's kind of on edge and prepared and uh, stocked well. Well, it's funny you say that because we hadn't talked about this, but, you know, new capacity has come online at the steel mills here recently. Um, For instance, uh, Steel Dynamics uh, put a plant in Sinton, Texas, that's brought on a a lot more capacity. Uh, Nucor has brought on more capacity. Uh, Big Rivers brought on more capacity, which is actually U.S. Steel. So there's more capacity that's coming online or has come online. I would say, you know, when it comes to steel itself, we were seeing, you know, at the height of the of the of the shortage, if you will, in 2021, lead times of 12 to 14 weeks. Now we're seeing lead times around eight weeks. So you're seeing the lead times for the 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 steel become better. Um, I would also, but I would also say that the other components that go into making the product yeah. could be the 
could be the culprit in slowing the whole process down. So from a steel standpoint, I think the capacity will help, but I think the other components I can't speak for. Yeah. I, I, I do think that steel is a major component, like being able to get it, but you know, staffing the staffing the the manufacturing plants and stuff like that. Also, drivers to even get us the product. Like, I've heard some manufacturers like, dude, I got the product, I just can't get it to you. Um, you know, they're having a hard time because some of the stuff that we buy is really long. So if I buy an eighteen foot door, you know, and they're trying to put it on a uh, you know a carrier service or whatever, it's not going to work. So they either got to have like their own driver or we got to pay massive amounts of money to get it to us. Um, so that, that in and of itself is a challenge. I think a lot of the companies who have their own drivers and their own trucks probably doing pretty well right now um, as far as getting product out. I think the companies that rely on other people to drive their trucks is where they're, they're probably having the biggest challenge. That would be my guess. Cause there are, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. are very different. Um, so just out of curiosity, could you walk me through, um, I mean, we've talked a little bit about this briefly, but um, manufacturers are buying raw steel from you guys and making it. Uh, what numbers are they watching, like, specifically? Do you know? Absolutely. They're, they're watching the same things that we are. Maybe not to the degree that we are but they're looking at the indexes that measure steel pricing. They're looking at scrap. They're looking at lead times uh, at the mill. They're, they're looking at all of those factors when they're making their decision. So for instance, you know, the price of steel since, uh, since October or since the peak of last year to where it is today has actually dropped close to 30%. And why has that happened? Well, that's happened because of the output situation. I was telling you with, with regard to the supply chain. You can't produce a finished good, so therefore you can't buy more steel. If you can't buy more steel and the mill's not selling as much, it brings the price down. The other thing is, is people got so frustrated last year with the availability issues, being able to get steel, being able to absorb those high prices that it allowed offshore countries to come in and bring steel into the United States at cheaper prices than the domestic mills. But you have to wait longer and then it may get held up at the port. So there's some risk mitigation issues there. That steel started to come in. But what's interesting now is that with all of the situation that's going on with Ukraine, the raw material costs starting to move up, now people are, we're at the bottom of the market and it's getting ready to, to, to go back up again. So, so I would say in, in looking at it today, even though the price of steel has dropped close to 30% since, uh, since the uh, height of the, the pricing, now it's looking like it's moving the other way because of, of the issues that we just mentioned. Okay. So I do want to hammer home something because uh, we started a conversation that I felt like was probably the most important, but I'm not sure we like really hammered it home because when you and I were talking, you were saying that it's, it's very common for in the manufacturing world for like, I guess, door manufacturers or automotive companies to ask you for transparent pricing. Is that right? 
it is it's common in not just in the steel area but in every area so the what's interesting i'll kind of take a little bit of time but it, it kind of gives you an idea 15 20 years ago typically the per person that was buying steel was either the plant manager or a purchasing person, just a regular purchasing agent. The same person that was purchasing pens and toilet paper was purchasing steel. As the market and supply chain has developed, companies are now bringing in people from that have supply chain backgrounds, whether it's Michigan State or Indiana or one of these other schools, and they're coming in. They may not know a whole lot about steel, but they know about supply chain. And the first thing they go to when they are buying anything, whether it's steel or wire or whatever, is a transparent cost model to show what, so you can show what your costs are, what your profit margin is, to be able to, so that they can go in and, and be able to pick out which is the best supplier based off that. So that is, that's where we're moving to. Now that may not have caught up to where you're you're part of the industry, you're at the very end user. It's hard yeah. It's hard to be able to get to that detail, but uh, the closer you can get to that detail, the better it is that you can be able to manage your business. So to understand properly, you suggested that I ask my manufacturers for transparent pricing, right? I, I would say it couldn't hurt. Yeah, and so if they were to give it to me, a breakdown of that would be their cost on the track versus the door sections versus the hardware versus the spring and all of that, the mm -hmm. paint, the labor, the, the freight, which they already break the freight out, but transparent pricing is pretty common to be asked for in manufacturing. I don't, I, I've never heard of that before because I've never worked in manufacturing before, but I've never heard it from a retail standpoint, asking a manufacturer. I think like, from this perspective, I know it's probably common with you. Uh, I'm guessing they would laugh at me. Um, even though I don't think that it would make a difference as far as like, um, like my perception, because I want them to make money, but I could see how a lot of people would be like, Oh my God, you're making this much on me. Um, in reality, I, uh, I, I could see how it'd be beneficial because circling back to what you said earlier, circle back, circle back. Tamara, that's my jam. Um, is when you say, okay, paint goes up 20%. Now, you know, it's not 20% for garage doors or the whole kit. It's 20% for that specific portion. So it allows you to track and, uh, project, uh, like what type of increase is taking place. Um, so you can't just look holistically at an entire garage door, look at it as one component. Um, so I feel like that's extremely valuable and I would love to have something like that in the garage door industry, maybe even like a public, uh, index almost, uh, where we take averages. I don't think we'd ever be able to get that, but that'd be super cool. Um, I'm not really sure how we would do that, but I'm a data junkie. So I, I love transparent, open data, um, but maybe that's something that I can work on. Um, on the topic of door manufacturers, like my perception of door manufacturers is that, that, and this is strictly like, I got no data to back this up, but just from my interactions with them, 
there's a couple different manufacturers. You got like publicly traded, like Clopate, who is uh, is a behemoth, right? Uh, you got you got companies like Amar and Traumatic, who, um, you know, I think they're owned by a big like Swedish company or something. Um, you have like these little guys, um, like Doorlink. Um, you got CHI, who has taken on multiple investors and is basically as I understand it, um, like owned by an investment firm, um, probably private equity or something. So you've got like, you got all these different dynamics and what it seems to be is, and and this is why I've never had like this high expectation of wholesale. And I've never really wanted to get into wholesale is that it's strictly a bottom line business and it's how efficient can you run your company and still make money? Right. I mean, for mm-hmm. the most part, um and like how do you buy raw materials sell them for a profit and be profitable and the more efficient you are the more profitable you are and i feel like our industry is significantly less efficient than any other industry i've ever seen in my life um you know take for example like we're still getting doors in 25 and 27 gauge steel um and when they're building these like what we call pandors or non-insulated doors, which is a single sheet of metal. A lot of them come in damaged, but there's a high likelihood of them being damaged, right? Because you got to think about it. I mean, they're, they're running through manufacturing. They're going through a quality control pro- like process kind of. And then, you know, they, they get probably stored. And then the truck comes, they uh, put them on the truck with a bunch of other doors. Then they let these door companies uh, from all over the country sift through everything grab what's theirs, pull it out, leave what's in there. And then once it gets to you, hopefully it's all in one piece, you get it out. You got busted windows, you got cracked or, you know, bit doors. Um, what are some things that we could do? I mean, like I buy a lot of three layer doors, so it's like steel reinforced on the inside and outside with insulation in the middle. So it's like, you know, it's a little bit more durable. It holds up better. Um, but other than that, like, I mean, how can we reduce the amount of damage with steel getting to us? Because that's got to be like a massive hit to their bottom line every year. You know, that's a, that's a good point. And one of the things that I worked on last year with customers, because they weren't going to win on transactional price, they weren't going to be able to remove costs through transactional price was to be able to remove costs through production, scrap, and a number of those number of other scenarios that add costs to the supply chain. And so what your example there of this of the steel door being damaged in, in transit, that's a field claim. And how much does a field claim cost above and beyond the actual cost itself, right? Mm-hmm. People lay i mean people having to get involved the sales guy having to get involved everything you know customer service all of those things whereas if you hypothetically you in the general sense were to say okay instead of doing this 25 or 27 gauge steel and packaging in a certain way being able to package it in a way so that it doesn't get damaged in transit and so one of the things that majestic does is we ship steel 26 gauge, 28 gauge, 30 gauge galvanized sheets, kind of similar to a door, but it's just raw sheets. 
across the country. Very rarely do we get any um, damaged, you know, in transit. Occasionally, a driver may move too fast, and the and the truck may shift. But it has to do with packaging your product. And if you're producing a product like a garage door, which if you're going to put that much effort into making sure that the steel is pristine, the paint's pristine, every the whole manufacturing process is pristine. You got to go ahead and make sure that it's it's that way in in transit. I'm not saying that they're not, but I'm yeah. just talking in generalities. So, give me some examples of other places you guys sell steel, like automotive, garage door industry. What are some others? Great question. Uh, we do a we do a lot. Um, don't do a whole whole lot in automotive. Um, that's not to say that we won't down the road, but a lot of it's going into metal building applications. I think you said another podcast, you had a, a buddy in the roofing industry. We do some business in that industry. We do business with in the agricultural industry. Uh, we do business in material handling. We're a very diverse um, company. We do a lot in the HVAC industry. So your furnace pipe that you have or residential duct work or or commercial duct work, that those are industries that we do very well in. And so we're, we have a very diverse uh, supply chain. We have a very, very diverse uh, customer base. So, so that's what I'm saying when we're at the 50 yard line, we very diverse on both sides of, of the field. When you being at the 50 yard line, would you say that the garage door manufacturers are on par with the other companies that you work with as far as like innovation, um, data analyst, or operationally? Uh, I would say that it's tough for me to, to answer that question. I'd rather say that in, in manufacturing, there's certain segments that are really doing well. And then there's certain segments that are just totally focused on transactional price and not in looking at other aspects of their business. So I'll give you an example. Um, some companies that are out there haven't looked at their steel specifications in over 20, 25 years. And the steel industry has changed um, so much over the last 20, 25 years. Mills are better at making steel and so on and so forth. And simple changing of the specification could actually remove thousands of dollars when I say thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars out of people's supply chain by simply looking at their specifications. So one customer I worked with, we looked at their specifications and made a few modifications, which resulted in cost savings, cost removal, I should say, because once the, once the cost is removed, it ain't coming back. <laughs> so, um, you know, to the tune of, you know, six figures. Wow. Uh, we saw, a lot of garage door manufacturers price increases range from, you know, 60, 70% over the year and all the way up to over a hundred percent. You had quoted a number earlier uh, going from 30 to um, over a dollar. And that's like three times. Uh, why do you think there's such a big discrepancy between the increase in galvanized steel uh, going from 30 cents to over a dollar. Well, I think you said a dollar or nine. Right. Um, in a short amount of period, but the garage doors only went up, you know, 70 to hundred percent. Well, that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, I would have to say that your companies are trying to be as fair as they possibly can with 
with you as the end user. They're being, you know, trying to treat you right, in my opinion. The opinion of your customer is somebody's making some money out of this. But, <laughs> right. but, but I would have to say that if your costs did not go up directly with the steel, then, then I would have to say that you're doing very well. I, I would have to say listening to your other podcast in June of 2021, I believe it was, you, you had two increases, one of 14% and one of 22%. But by then the pricing had really gone up really fast. It's hard for manufacturers to adjust their price book that quickly to what goes on in the marketplace. Yeah, you think it's hard for them, try being at a retail. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the 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 issue, and, and they kept telling us that, uh, you know, we were getting notifications like, hey, effective the minute you get this email, the price of all garage doors are up 23%. And you're like, holy crap, I've got two, <laughs> two jobs I need to order. That's a total of, you know, eight, $10,000. And I'm like, this is going to throw me way off. I'm not going to make any money on this deal. Right. So right, you're right. like, holy cow. But then when I question them about it, they're like, this is what the steel manufacturers were doing to us. Uh, they were hitting us with like immediate price increases, uh, effective, you know, now or whatever. So is that, um, is that pretty typical or is that like, oh crap, we're having to adjust our prices and it's changing so rapidly that you literally have to just do it immediately. And I think one of the reasons why they were doing it too, is because when they were given notice, people were buying massive amounts of garage doors and then taking up the, um, taking up the, uh, the inventory and, um, creating a vacuum where it caused more of a problem. But I bought doors in October, what, 2020. And I'm so glad I did, did because those things sat on a shelf and increased greater than Bitcoin from 2017 at $5,000. Just kidding. It's close. Well, uh, that, that's why you're a smart guy, Ryan. Ah, <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, so what, um, like when we, I don't get that very often. Sorry. You got me flustered. So, <laughs> no joke. I was told I was dumb my whole life pretty much until I was about 20. Um, so when we're talking about the, the, um, the price increases, is that pretty, I mean, from a manufacturer standpoint, like, like you guys, right. Uh, were you, were you able to give notices or did you guys experience the same thing when you were given notices, they were just buying massive bulk more than, than they can. Or like, I was even told that that's not how steel works from the wholesale point of view. Like you get allocation and that's how like these, like people like you know what to buy. So, um, you guys are out there like buying steel and manufacturing it. And then you have a certain amount every year increase that you allow for. So I'm just confused about how that whole thing works. Well, not to get too much into too much detail, but what I would tell you is that anytime any steel supply chain that's managed properly is able to, for a short period of time, being able to absorb any kind of announced price increases that, that come through. The price increases that generally come through 
that you see announced from the mill like last week was, uh, or in the last two weeks, we've seen $150 a ton, call it $7.50 worth of, uh, or seven and a half cents worth of steel price increases in the last two weeks. You know, that's based on the orders that are in the spot market. So if you're just going to the mill and say, hey, I want to buy material as a spot customer, that's what you're going to be paying more of if it's available. If okay. there's contractual agreements between, between suppliers and, and manufacturers in any type of product, whether it's steel, aluminum, wire, whatever, there's, there's contractual agreements that are put in place to make sure that, you know, tomorrow you're not paying X, Y, Z more than you are, than you were, you know, the day before. So, so I would have to say that, you know, if you're effectively managing your supply chain and you're utilizing contractual methods, um, eventually you are going to pay those price increases, but to have a flip of the switch to pay it, pay it the next day is not, is not, we don't see that a whole lot. However, I will say this is that any good business is always going to sell what they're selling based on how much it costs to replace it. So for instance, if you had a garage door today that you paid the one you bought in October of 2020 and you paid $500 for it, I'm just throwing this out there or a thousand dollars, say it's a thousand. And that same garage door you can sell today for 1800 or 2000 because that's how much it's going to cost you to replace it. Right. You're, you're going to do that. So, so it's, it's, it's all in how you manage your business, all how you manage your supply chain and, you know, companies eventually are going to be paying these are paying the price increases, but they have to go ahead and, and be able to sell off of their replacement costs. Yeah. So that's probably why you saw what you saw. Gotcha. Yeah. And there was one other thing I'll mention before we get off that for, you know, more of a statement than anything. I think it was really frustrating that um, there were some manufacturers that even uh, said that whatever's on order currently um, the price is being increased. So like we were already having like long lead times and apparently um, I was told by some uh, dealers and I didn't experience this, but apparently there was one or two manufacturers that were like, Oh crap. Um, if you want to keep this order, you can cancel it or keep it. But if you keep it, it's going up like 18%. And you're talking like, we've already, like these dealers have already sold the product, right? It's already like wrapped up. Like they got deposit, sold it with a customer, agreed on price with a certain amount of profit margin. And now you're talking about eating a large portion of that profit margin with an increase that the dealer really just got kicked out of teeth with. So, uh, you know, that's, that's disappointing. That's disappointing for you. We, we didn't, we didn't treat any of our customers like that. So, um, not to get on the soapbox about majestic, but we didn't shut any of our contractual customers down last year. We were able to keep them in steel. We were very fair on the price. If we didn't renege on a price, you know, if your price was, you know, a dollar a pound, you know, if the market went up, we, we have a deal at a dollar. And so, so I would have to say that what you experienced there, um, knowing what, just what you're telling me, that's, that's disappointing. Um, but we, we never operated like that. So listen, Brian, I really, really, really appreciate you coming on and the honesty and transparency 
like, I think you were able to put some things in perspective today for me personally. I think a lot of people in the industry, it'll put some perspective in. I really wish that we could have gotten a lot of this information. And I don't know if anybody would have trusted them anyway, but um, from the manufacturers, our manufacturers are just like so bad about communication and, and, and uh, everybody's afraid of whatever. I don't know, backlash or whatnot. Uh, but I, I love transparency. I love, I love having conversations like this. I think it only helps matters, even if it's short-term pain. Um, but I think the perception, like this battle going on between dealers and manufacturers and all these changes and increases in prices have really brought division between the manufacturers and the dealers with the delays and the damaged product and the increased pricing and the bad communication. The one thing that they can certainly control is the communication. And I just like, you know, this is my cry to all the manufacturers. Listen, I don't think you guys are doing a horrible job. Do I think you could do better? Yeah. Do I think we could do better? Absolutely. hundred percent. But the communication, the conversation has to get better. Like we've got to get better at having dialogue and conversation at a higher level because the reps don't really know, um, you know, they're, they're piling on a little bit with the sob stories. So I would just like to have open, transparent conversation because I believe today brought a lot of understanding to what the manufacturers are going through. And uh, I have more sympathy towards them because of this conversation. That makes me happy. So I appreciate that, Brian. Thank you for taking the time to come on and share that with us. Um, and you've got, I guess, really... I mean, maybe you do have something to lose. You could be wanting to sign up Clopay and all these other big brands. Uh, say, say you could have stuck up for them a little bit, but uh, <laughs> if you, uh, I, I do believe that you, you came on with it with an honest, transparent approach and a fact driven uh, conversation, which I, I love. Um, I'm all about facts. So I appreciate that. Okay. No, I'm glad to do it. Uh, Ryan, thanks so much. This was my first podcast. I was so excited to be on here and I really, <laughs> Thank you very much. I would highly recommend that you check out our website for your listeners, uh, majesticsteel.com, M-A-J-E-S-T-I-C, steel.com. We've got podcasts, we've got fact-based information. Check us out. I think you'll see that we are very uh, transparent with market information and innovation. And I think um, you know, we are definitely a company to watch uh, moving forward. Awesome. And if you're a manufacturer out there and you're having a hard time getting some tracker doors, some steel for your doors, Brian might be your guy. So uh, <laughs> reach out to Brian at Majestic and uh, hopefully you, dude, I, I hope you get two or three calls from some big manufacturers that are like, you got all that steel. We're ready. Let's buy. Uh, I, I, Thanks so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Yeah, bro. All right. Well, listen, guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to follow uh, Brian and Majestic and their reports, their podcast. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to Torch Talk Podcast, make sure you do so on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget, we got a lot of things going on. We got Committed to Culture. Uh, we're dropping those episodes on YouTube. Uh, we got the Culture Tours coming up towards the end of April here at Aaron Overhead Doors. We also have... Um, GDU. If you haven't joined GDU or applied for GDU, make sure you do that. If you're a business owner and you're looking for answers, this is like absolutely the best thing to do. 
Uh, we've got 20 something business owners in groups. Tamara leads them, takes excellent notes, guides the conversation, make sure everybody stays on task. She's a, a child wrangler, we would call her, uh, but she helps everybody stay focused and on task. You get one hour a week with uh, other business owners outside of your market. How you're overcoming challenges, we share ideas, marketing, sales, processes, hiring, you you name it. If you're interested, make sure you check out garagedooryou.com. Thank you so much. Follow us on Facebook, Torsion Talk, and such and such media. Good Lord, I do a lot. We do a lot, Tamara. I know. A lot. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you. All right, guys, y'all have a wonderful week and talk to you later.